Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. And good evening, I'm Clarence Boone, and happy fall, and welcome to this edition of Bring It On. We're a multiple award-winning show celebrating over 14 years as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting African Americans. Good evening, I'm William Hosea. So is, is this the first day of fall? The first day of fall, okay. I think it was, what, 70, 77 degrees today. In today's broadcast, you'll also hear about news and events of interest for the black community. All of this and more in the next hour on Bring It On. But first, on any given day, there are close to a half million children in the foster care system. Only around 100,000 of these kids have a case plan for adoption, while the others are slated for reunification, emancipation, institutionalization, long-term foster care, or unfortunately, incarceration. Critics of adoption have sometimes argued that children need to grow up in families who match their ethnicity, lest they develop a confused sense of identity. According to this viewpoint, ethnically Asian children should be raised in Asian families, black children in black families, and Latino children in Latino families, and so on and so forth. But in practice, because most adoptive parents in the U.S. are white, many adoptions are transracial. As, as minority children are placed in white families. Are these children at risk for problems as they, as they make sense of themselves as minorities in white families and communities? Joining us in the studio today to share her experience as a transracial adoptive parent is Erin Predmore, President and CEO of the Greater Bloomington Chamber of Commerce. Erin, welcome to Bring It On and thank you so much for being with us here today. Well, thanks for having me, William. So starting off, what, can you tell us a little bit about your family? Yeah, so um, my husband and I have three kids, um, two biological children and one adopted ch child. Um, and our adopted child is black. He is nine years old. Um, and then my, our two other children are older than him, so they're 12 and 15. All right, and um, the term transracial did that have you heard of that term before mm -hmm. very much so so that was very much uh when we were doing a lot of research and things like that getting to understand what was going on with the adoption we were uh, mm -hmm. looking that stuff up and trying to figure out lots of things that's a term that lots of adoptive parents are in the research is out there okay and yeah, we have a little echo in our in our system <coughs> and our engineer is spot on it trying to rectify that so I thought I heard a voice in my head not that I hear voices in my head ladies and gentlemen uh, I don't I, and I do not listen to those voices but <laughs> I thought I heard a whispering there well I heard them too so you safe. okay thank you thank you thank <laughs> you um you know w tell us about okay you you said you have two biological children mm -hmm. so this was not a situation or maybe it was I'm not sure that you tried maybe unsuccessfully to have children and said, well, then adoption is an option for us. Or did you have children and say, well, you know, we want to open our home and provide a loving environment to a child who does not have that right now? Um, it was closer to option two, mm -hmm. uh, situation two for us. So we had already had um, 
our two biological children. Um, I was interested in having more children. Mm -hmm. Uh, My husband was less interested in having more children. Um, And he, um, it's, he basically, yeah, he basically just said he didn't love that process of having more children. He was also worried about sustainability um, and we've kind of replaced ourselves on the earth. Um, And so as we went through that process as a couple, we realized that adoption would be a really, an, an option for us um, to be able to grow our family in that way. Um, and my sister, one of my sisters had recently adopted as well, a mm-hmm. year or two before we did. Um, and so I'd seen them go through that process and were successful and was able to use her kind of in that, in a family way. So our mm-hmm. extended family was already um, transracial in that way. Um, and so it, it became more of a, a, a possibility for us. So the, the idea or notion of, of adopting a child uh, of a different race was, was not foreign to you and that you were already loving uh, a niece or nephew mm-hmm. um, in your family. So the process starts, the, the desire, the yearning to have another child starts. So what was the process you took to go about this? Well, we started just doing some research and learning a little bit more about adoption in all of its forms um, and trying to figure out, navigate what would be the best fit for our family. Mm-hmm. Um, we were just open to the possibilities. And I think that's a lot of, um, that. that is, in my opinion, looking back, that is why we have an African-American son. Um, I learned a lot about the cost of adoption. Um, there's, to be blunt, higher prices on different children and different races and mm-hmm. sexes of children, mm-hmm. uh, which really turned my stomach and made me feel ill. Um, we were open to international adoption. Uh, we looked into that as well. And um, w- during this time, there was uh, um, a lot of, uh, uh, different like uh, international adoption agencies that would work for children that were in um, orphanages and things like that. And we thought about that. And essentially when we looked into that, my husband, again, very wisely pointed out, you know, if we're willing to adopt an African (coughs) child, why would we not do an African American child one that's here? Mm -hmm. And he was right. I mean, there wasn't Mm -hmm. a reason that 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 was really a barrier for us at all. So that was how we ended up in that, in that process. And so what we, we ended up putting in our adoption papers, um, going through home study process and preparing for the adoption and getting approved. And then you kind of apply to an adoption agency. Um, And for us, our faith is very much a part of this. Mm -hmm. And um, we were just open to whatever God may provide. So we we were open to that and and prepared ourselves as much as we could for whatever Mm -hmm. may happen. So when you started the adoption process and you went to the adoption agency, did you tell them from the beginning that we want to adopt an African-American child or did did you just, was there something that brought you to uh, your son that brought you two together? Um, Basically the way, the process, when we did the application, they asked for preferences or if there Mm -hmm. was any type of child we would not accept. Um, And so essentially went through that process looking looking through it and what we decided was we would accept anything that it, any any child with any medical condition or um, they ask you about drug exposure I mean they ask you about all these different things and um, we just sort of went through the process and said we were open to whatever genetically my husband and I may produce on our own <laughs> um, so if it was something in our family that already existed we thought we were we had to be ready with that with our own children uh, our biological children we had already um, and so we that we use that as our as our guide um, and then specifically around an african-american child or not, we said that we were open to that, um, recognizing that meant that it was highly likely we would have a non-white child um, yeah. in our adoptive process. Mm-hmm. That, and so we, while we didn't know until we were matched with uh, our son's birth mother um, about ra- what the race would, of our child would be. Explain that process. Uh, you said home study, mm-hmm. and then there's a matching process. You said matched with that child's birth mother. That, that's interesting, mm-hmm. meaning yeah. match 
uh, you were close in age to the birth mother? No, that, that, um, that there were um, families that had applied mm -hmm. to this adoption agency. Um, and a lot of it is once you're home study approved and you're able to do an adoption, you're at that place where it's been approved throughout through the state. Like the, the state has, each state has a different process, but mm -hmm. um, you send in your home study and the agency approves you to mm -hmm. be a placement for one of the children that, one of the babies that their birth mothers are looking to, to do. So, so she had some choice in us as well. Oh, I see. So I she, see. she was see. presented with families that were interested Mm -hmm. um, in adopting, and then she got to pick from there. Okay, and and so uh, the home study may consist of the the dynamics of your home. Mm -hmm. uh, someone comes in and sort of they they talk with everyone in the in the household, and mm -hmm. they sort of look at such things as um, um, space in the home. I would think, or or what are the categories? Cause yeah, they look at some of that. A lot of it's they're making sure that you're a safe family. Um, they make sure that you're prepared for the adoption. So it, adoption is is a um, is they call it a, an adoption triad. So you have the adopted child, you have the birth parents and the adoptive parents. Mm -hmm. And those three units are gonna be linked together for the rest of their lives um, because of this of this thing that has happened. And so they wanna make sure that as adoptive parents, you recognize um, that there's a burden that you're taking on and that you owe it to this child to honor that, that there's gonna be grief involved, there's gonna be struggles involved, there's gonna be um, I know we're going to be talking a little bit about kind of racial identity development mm -hmm. and all that. So just recognizing that this is not necessarily an, an easy path, um, although a parent of both biological and adoptive children, I would <laughs> claim that <laughs> none of them are easy. Um, but it is a different path. And so recognizing that. So part of the home study process is getting that information um, and just assuring that the the adoptive parents are as prepared as they can. I mean, they, they did things like made sure we had life insurance, you know, made sure that we had a that we had plans for our children mm -hmm. if we were to die, like just kind of checking those boxes of, of how we would navigate life forward. Okay. I have a two-part question. How, how old were your biological children when you first started the adoption process? And what kind of conversation did you have with them to prepare them for, for uh, bringing a child of a different race into your home? Mm -hmm. They were six and three um, when we adopted our youngest. And um, a lot of that was um, we talked about we were going to we were doing this adoption thing and that we were gonna you know, have another baby in the house. Um, they were at the place at that point where they were more interested in the biology of you know, reproduction, like how babies are made. They would have questions like that. They weren't real sure how, you know, cause they had, my oldest had seen me pregnant with my second. Um, and so she was confused as to why you know, this was the process. But then also when I said, oh, it's like your, um, your cousin, you know, we had just as a family, like I said, gone through that and seen that process. And so that was pretty easy for them to, to grasp that. They did not care at all about the race of the child and they never asked any questions specific to that. Um, they were sad that he cried a lot when he was, <laughs> they wanted him to stop crying. I mean, it was just very sibling-like. I mean, they just sort of were like, oh, here's this baby. We yeah. want to make mm -hmm. him happy. So um, care to share the age of your son? He's nine. Nine. Mm -hmm. So I would assume at some point he asked the question we're talking about now, racial identity. Mm -hmm. um, Mom, why do I look different than you? Oh, yeah, <laughs> or, we have that conversation all the time. Um, when did you start having that conversation? Um, I would say in the last year or two, it really became more common. Um, mm -hmm. Earlier, I mean, we would talk about it. Or it was in passing, <coughs> but it wasn't um, something that he voiced. I know it was something he recognized, but we've sort of mm -hmm. let him set the pace for a lot of those questions. and. Um, and that sort of thing, so kind of letting him be the guide in that. Um, but yeah, so he asked that pretty frequently. 
was uh, what would you do instances watching TV and characterizations on TV or story plots, whatever, and uh, black identities expressed mm-hmm. or, or shared on TV? Would he have questions about, hey, identify with that person or how was how that? I haven't handled? seen it. I haven't seen it be that overt. I've seen him um, like for career day, he wanted to be a rapper. Mm-hmm. And so he wanted to borrow like he, like big gold chain rap, like very mm-hmm. like stereotypical because he had seen pictures and he had he knew culturally that was a connection. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I mean, that was sort of like as that all fell together. I was just I was just like, how is I mean, it was just a funny moment of just like, OK, well, you're like this. Yep. OK, let's get you set up. Like, how, what is it you need to look like a rapper? And he had a very strong image of what that meant. Um, so we've had moments like that where he's been exposed within black culture in that way of, of a stereotypical like this is a thing that mm-hmm. identifies, you know, that you can identify with closely. And he's held on. He, you know, grabs onto those moments mm-hmm. sometimes for full transparency. I'm over here cracking up <laughs> trying not to laugh on the air because if, if my daughters if one of my daughters had sat that we, we probably have a little conversation like okay then why but and then again well, no, we did, no we, we had a further conversation okay, about okay. how some rap is not okay not right. yeah no we, we also did that part of the conversation but for him as a young boy um I feel like it was a moment where he was trying to strongly identify like right. he was like this right. is a thing he also wants to be a scientist you know so right. he right. sees himself as he has lots of he has lots of options, Clarence. <laughs> you ask him, lots of potential future jobs. Um, so, so growing older, now going to school. How were some of the experiences as your son went mm-hmm. to school? Were they? I think the hardest thing we've dealt with with school specifically has been um, here in Bloomington. There aren't as many black children in his classroom, and mm-hmm. so he feels isolated in that way. Um, and so we'll, if we see a black child at school, or I mean, we talked about this the other day about how at his school there's probably five to 10 black boys there. And mm-hmm. I'm like, well, do you know all of them? And he's like, well, no, not all of them. And I'm like, you gotta meet them, man. You gotta go up and say, hi, you need to be friends with them. Like you need to like make your group. Mm-hmm. Like you need to mm-hmm. seek them out. And so f- he's young, so he's learning how to do that. But sort of how does he make his space where he feels like he's got other kids involved um, in his life that he, he can identify with. Um, so we're encouraging him to do that. And we found a way to through other um, like after school activities and things like that. So if we find that there are more African-American children involved in those things, then we try to like those would be things, choices that we make for him, too, so that he can school becomes easier. Mm-hmm. What are some of the uh, your, your biggest challenges that, that you've had to deal with so far? Um, I know when when you're out uh, in public and people see your family and some people will tend to either do a double take or just watch you until you until you're out of sight Uh, (laughs) i'm fascinating to watch i'm sure (laughs) so how how do you deal with that or is is there some other challenge uh that you've had to address that's been problematic for you it's funny when when he was first born we were very aware that people looked at us. Mm-hmm. And um, my husband and I remember being in the sh- grocery store with him as an infant. Um, and uh, we were there in the grocery store and there was uh, other people and they just would look over. Now at this time he wasn't, um, he wasn't as dark as he is now, right? So he's an infant, as he hasn't, he had all of his color, his melanin had not all come in, right? So he, even at that point, he could have been a biracial baby. Like it was just very like, even then we were just hypersensitive of like, we're two white parents and we have this baby. Um, and we laughed about it later, kind of like, we've got to get over this, like this is ridiculous. And it was just something to be, to normalize in our lives. 
at this point we give no thought to other people who may think we are interesting um we are just who we are um and i really haven't had i can't think of a time where anybody said or did anything um where i felt you know where they were judging me or anything like that as i was walking around um i would say the hardest thing i mean to go back to it the hardest thing for us has been um talking about tough things with him um like slavery i mean that's been a really hard that continues to be a hard conversation um racism in general like having those conversations where um as white people who are privileged being able to explain that to our black son where he's mad and he's angry and frustrated that this is part of history and us trying to navigate that with him that's been i would say that's the hardest thing for us I'm, so far I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because i was also uh i also wanted to ask you um <clears throat> you're probably aware of some of the uh the situations where uh between unarmed black men and police i'm um, very aware of that yeah so have you considered how you want to talk to your son about that or have you already uh talked to him about that we have we talk about that when it um i find with parenting it's like age appropriate information as they can handle it right so we um and that's pretty much true for any subject but whenever that stuff comes up we'll talk about it if it's in the news we'll bring that up um we've had to talk to him about how to be safe around police officers um one of our neighbors um is a police officer our our former neighbor was a police officer um and i wanted to make sure he knew that that man was nice and that he could talk to him if he had any questions i also knew that i wanted him to know that if that was a if it was a very active and energetic situation and the police were involved that he was not to move i mean it's those kind of conversations of recognizing that i want to build trust in him um, for his community i can't that's only a half the struggle right like the community has to be trustworthy um but having him to be open to that trust and have that be able to go both ways so we're trying to navigate that um and it's a hard one and your two older children do they come back and uh and ask you questions uh uh, do they have any experiences at school knowing that they have uh, a a black sibling because children can be cruel sometimes they haven't Mm -hmm. told us about any well i that's not true they've had a couple of times where kids have been very nosy and inquisitive um, and to the point where they've made made them feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've talked about kind of how they want to handle that. Um, and we've talked about how there are tons of families that are different, that, you know, even if we were all the same color, had all the same color skin, we would be different for other reasons. It just wouldn't be as obvious. And so we are just who we are, That's and we love each other. It. So kind of then go take a hike. I mean, it just doesn't it, – it's not that it doesn't impact us. It does, but it – but we can't let it stop us because we already exist. And so our family is whole and it's loving and mm-hmm. it's good. So like, yeah, they, they just can not worry about it. <laughs> For those who just joined us on Bring It On, we're having a, a wonderful conversation with Erin Pretmore, who is president and CEO at the Greater Bloomington Chamber of Commerce. She's joining us today to share her experiences as a transracial adoptive parent. Um, one thing, you, and I'm so glad you just reaffirmed that, that the strength of family and the protective bonds of family. Uh, sometimes, though, we do have friends of family <laughs> who sometimes can say or blurt out <laughs> things that, uh, you know, you should engage mine before opening mouth. But uh, some, Or, or some, even relatives. Or, or relatives. I mean, they may bring perceptions or long-held ideas to the fore and uh how if you don't have to go into great detail but when those moments happen i'm pretty sure they may have happened how would you handle that they have happened clarence um a lot of times it's 
I read there's some really great books about transracial adoption. Um, and I remember in one of them, um, one of the the writers is a psychologist. She's an African-American psychologist who was writing about raising black children and, and navigating, you know, crazy comments and things like that in their lives. And she said for a long time, she just would laugh at that person and just point out how ridiculous that was. Mm-hmm. And that for a child, that's all they needed to know was that that right, idea that right. that person just said was completely crazy and loony and just... Lord of mercy, that person should go away. <laughs> and so then she said, as I got older, you can shift that conversation to a deeper level. Um, but it's okay to laugh at crazy people who mm-hmm. still hold on to beliefs that are not founded in fact or who are <clears throat> racist or who um, who are perhaps well-intentioned but harmful and hurtful in their words. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've I've taken that to heart, and we've used that um, in a lot of ways. And then we have private conversations with that adult person, if it's someone we know, right. um, and tell them why that was so hurtful. Um, right. I don't find that that's helpful to do in front. I haven't found that is helpful to do in front of my child, especially when he was younger, yeah. because he didn't have to carry the weight of that moment. Right. It's already, he's just a kid. So he didn't have to understand all the the feelings going around the room. Mm-hmm. He already, he picked up on the negative, and then we could just get him out of there and laugh about how awful that was and tell him why that was ridiculous, and then have another conversation with that adult. Mm-hmm. and. Are you sensitive to, um, say, outings, going places where uh, you may opt to, well, I don't want to ex- have my child exposed to what may possibly be in this particular establishment or whatever. So you've had to either reroute your plans or mm-hmm. had to rethink destinations. Uh, any experiences with that? Um, yeah, so we're, my husband and I are both from South Carolina. Um, and so when we drive home, we don't, <laughs> we don't stop in rural Kentucky. Um, and go to Walmart. I mean, like, mm-hmm. bluntly speaking, we did it one time, and I w- won't ever do that again. There were so many Confederate flags in that parking lot. Well, can that, I share something with you? Sure. I don't stop in rural Kentucky either. Right. See, this is the wisdom. It, I will just say, as a white woman, um, I, that has been the part that, um, I mean, again, I knew it from an intellectual standpoint, but it's very different if somebody's threatening my child. Oh, yeah. And um, so one of my friends said that I'm, basically a, I mean like it, you just end up feeling like a black mother like I will mm-hmm. carry my blacks I will do whatever I need to it does not matter um, and I get that I get that mm-hmm. very much and so no we just we just don't do that was that protectiveness of uh, the maternal instinct to protect um, and to shield mm-hmm. our children from things that you don't want them to, to hear see or experience um, I, I have to uh, say that um, I applaud what you've done. There, there are different camps out there, and I, I know there are, and there's some who take the position, well, you know, like we read earlier, blacks should be with black families, and mm-hmm. uh, Latinos should be with Latino families, on and on. Everybody be in their own, you know, homogeneous area. But then again, life is not like that. Right. Um, and so those who take uh, the initiative and, and who are courageous uh, to say, hey, love can conquer a lot of things. Yeah. Um, I, I, I presume, and I hear nothing that will lead me to think otherwise, that your child's going to grow up with a very sensitive heart, very open heart, uh, accepting of people and their values, differences, and, and, and the whole thing. But it's sometimes that can be kind of heavy and taxing, I would imagine, week in and week out, um, just having to be on guard for your child. And can you speak to how that sometimes can be draining at times? Oh, I think that can definitely be draining. Um, and I would, and let me just add to the comment that you just said about the opinions about whether or not black children be black families. 
I have to say I understand why they would feel that way. Mm-hmm. That was not a choice for my son. So we were the choice for him. And it's okay to still believe that that may be the ideal, but until enough families of color step mm-hmm. forward and say they want to adopt, mm-hmm. then my family is an outstanding option for my son. And so, you know what? We love him and he's ours. It, it's just kind of one of those things where it's a moot point now for him. There are going to be millions of children in the future that need that. So, again, it's when other families do that, then I would support that. I would support their adoption um, because there is something that that my son is going to miss. I mean, I recognize that being raised in a white family, that we can expose him and interpret and and try to build that. But it is very different. And so that's always going to be something that he's going to need to build in his own self, his ability to – Basically, yeah, he's going to have to code switch from an early age, right? So he's going to have to be able to navigate those things. Um, and he d- he's not great at it now because he's surrounded by mainly white people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can tell he's interested in that and he wants to build that ability. So um, so I would just say that, that I, I do recognize that is a challenge for him. Um, yeah. And then when you asked about the draining part, I just think, I mean, I think parenthood itself can be we're just kind of in the thick of it right now with our kids and their ages and how active they are and everybody's running around. Um, So that part is hard. Um, And my husband and I, I mean, we just kind of keep coming back to each other and what we love each other very much. And we, like I said, have a strong faith and we know what we're trying to accomplish. We have, you know, ideals as a couple and as a family. Um, So when it gets bad, we just hug each other (laughs) and just, and try to laugh. I mean, there's been a lot of, there has been, there have been many times where it's just been like so crazy. It's just been like we just have to laugh at mm-hmm. the at the crazy moments. Um, so yeah, that's kind of I would say what we do, Clarence, is try to laugh enough and and take breaks. I mean, just try to get away for a little you bit. You have to laugh. Um, I mean, laughing uh, laughing is, is somewhat of a, a pressure release valve. Um, it, you can laugh at yourself is even better. And so I do a lot of laughing. So yeah. you know, laughing is 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 uh, sort of a a healing type of measure, and especially in stressful situations. Um, we talked before we went online about some of the questions that perhaps listeners already have, um, we, and I don't think we touched on this, but such things as, drum roll, hair care. Mm-hmm. So uh, that wonderful topic, um, the need for, especially as they get older in their different styles, mm-hmm. and of course, you know, you see media, and that sort of dictates, you know, what's the most fashionable thing now, but how did you tackle that area of just taking care of, of his hair? It was, it's always been really fun. Um, so we just learned a lot about it as he was a baby. Um, it's really, it was easy then. Um, he just, these sweet little soft curls mm-hmm. all around. Um, and uh, we would just, you know, he's adorable, little baby, sweet little baby. But yeah, as he got older, it needed, we needed to be, and he also, we wanted him to look sharp. We wanted him to feel good sure. about himself. And we understood how important that is within the black community um, and how much he would be judged depending mm-hmm. on his haircut, mm-hmm. um, and that we would be judged <laughs> based on his haircut. Um, so I get that. And um, so we do. We try to make sure he's got, you know, a good line, and he's got – he's looking good. And um, he likes to do – a lot of times he likes to do um, haircuts from the 90s. He likes to do mm-hmm. a nice, like, flat top and things mm-hmm. and maybe some lines on the side and stuff like that. Those are the, the things that he likes to do. So I let he picks out what he wants. Um Right now, he's got a bald fade. Okay. So. <laughs> well, my parents wouldn't let me uh, etch my name in the back of my hair. Uh, and I understand the wisdom of that. But anyway. They wouldn't have taken that long to see. It's just hair. Yeah. That's my thought is. You know yeah. what? It won't take that long to grow out. <laughs> I, <laughs> I tried it, but I misspelled it. You misspelled <laughs> it. Yeah, that, that's even worse. But but now, fashion and hair, 
it's so different. I think now the thing is now if he wants to start growing a beard at this age, he might mm-hmm. want to step in. I don't know, nine yeah. years of age, but hair fashion is so unpredictable these days. Uh, we're, we're, we're forgetting something here. What's that? There's a huge difference between hair care for a young man and a, a young woman. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can hear the women out there now wishing they could call in and tell us about it. Well, that. my phone's been buzzing, so maybe they yeah. are trying to reach us. But, uh, yeah, there are differences. So if you had a little girl, perhaps mm-hmm. this might really be an intentional. Be much more of a challenge. I would, no, yeah. it would be. And I have I have friends who's, who have adopted um, little girls and uh, that I'm aware of, and we've talked about that. And that's just mm-hmm. needed to be, um, you know, spending Saturday morning, you know, putting a movie in and doing hair all, you know, for mm-hmm. hours in the morning and um, doing the twist. I mean, like they've, I've been there for part of that. Miles has been there for part of it and mm-hmm. seen that process and come home and said, I am really glad my hair is shorter, you know, like, mm-hmm. and I'm like, well, you've got to take care of, you know, right. you still have to do these other things. So I think that's part of it is for a little boy. Um, I will say this is part of it at my house. Um, my uh, other son, you know, he literally just brushes his hair and then walks out and it's not a thing um, for my adopted son for whom that is not the answer Mm -hmm. and he has to pause what he's doing and you know come in from playing outside and we got to take a shower and we got a lotion we got to do all the things and it's there's this whole stepwise process he doesn't have a lot of patience at his age for those things Mm -hmm. um so a lot of it has just been logical consequences well if you want to kill you know a flat top you actually have to brush like it can't do that and and the barbers in town have been great about um you know if i kind of point out that he's not done great they'll nudge him and say man you got to take care of your hair this looks awful mm-hmm. like look at these you know it's that's all in there important. That's it is important. and that having another man say to him Absolutely. that he could look better right. and that they know he Absolutely. can do it has gone really far mm-hmm. to help you're uh, you mentioned earlier that your family of faith and that your your church is an integral part of, of your family have you found mentors in your church that have been helpful um we have found Yes, we have found people in our church have been very accepting mm-hmm. um, and supportive of us. I think that um, we're always open to more. I mean, you know, you talk about mentors. It's it is about kind of like where you um, find the people that can support you through those difficult times, and right. also introduce you to others who can answer questions for you. And there's a lot of humbleness that comes along with being a transracial adoptive parent. That mm-hmm. um, you just have to ask a lot of questions and make sure. When you do when you do it wrong, that you're open to fixing it, <laughs> mm-hmm. or um, if you make a misstep, which I know that I've done, um, and uh, and there are def- definitely times where I've needed somebody to help me kind of untangle something or figure out something better. You know, you you sound like your family has has uh, adjusted very well, or just been totally accepting of uh, the, you know the whole dynamic. W- was there ever a time when when you may have been a little worried about it? Um, I would say there's some extended family members that struggled a little bit more with this. Um, our immediate family, I mean, that, that has never been an issue. Um, but no, we had some, we had people that we were related to that had a harder time with this process and kind of what it meant. Did Um, they come around? They have. Mm -hmm. Was that a work in progress? It had, they have. It's, I mean, I think I would say probably it's a work in progress in some degrees, but, um, I mean, it's, I don't know. If you, <laughs> there's a saying that you throw somebody who throws away happiness with two hands. You know what I mean? They're just always going to be negative about something, and you know they've got it right there, and they're just going to make all the effort they can to be negative again, even if they're so happy. Um, those types of people, um, I don't have a lot of time for them, right. especially mm-hmm. if I have a 
beautiful child in my life that is happiness. <laughs> like, um, he's full of joy. He's got the cutest dimples. I mean, he's just this, you know, last night he, he's been building this um, hideout in the backyard with some old wood. Last night he decided to spray paint it. So now it looks like our his house is, his little house has been tagged. Um, and I was so angry with him last night because honestly, I mean, it looked bad already, but then it looked like, really looks like crap. And I was so mad. And then he was mad at me that I said that his thing, looked, his house looked like crap. And I was like, you're right. I should have said that, but you should have got this right. It was just this crazy moment. This awful moment of parenting. Um, that had nothing to do with his race or his ethnicity <laughs> or the color of his skin. Um, that was just a little boy getting into trouble and doing something he shouldn't have. So that was just a typical family moment. Exactly. Yeah. And so we have, that's what it is. It's, it's all of those moments. And then this is part of who he is. But just like me having, you know, and we talk about skin color all the time. So he, you know, I am a Tanner member of my family. And so we have, he has us arranged in tan <laughs> levels you know, I, I was going to ask you what what kind of phrases or terms, you know, uh, are flying back and forth when you're talking about skin color. Well, we just we talk about it like so. That's what I was going to say. So I'm um, I'm kind of khaki, um, and he'll talk about. I mean, like you know, he's chocolate. I have another family member who's definitely vanilla. I mean, like so he'll sort of layer it like that. But I guess that's what I'm trying to say is he knows that none of us are who just our skin color, right? So we're all more than just that. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, one thing I do want, well, I want to get to, khaki. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's pretty accurate, William. <laughs> one thing I want to get to, uh, we talked about hairstyle, and, of course, fashion is, is another thing, and fashion evolves every mm-hmm. two months yeah, or whatever. Um, cuisine. Mm-hmm. You mentioned you're from South Carolina, so you're fully aware of, of African-American delicacy. I am. I mean, it, coming from South Carolina. I am, yeah. So we grew up, it's funny because I grew up um, in a much more diverse community than Bloomington is. Like, mm-hmm. so we, I mean, it just ended up, it was when I went off to college that I realized that that was soul food and like other people didn't eat it. Like, you know what I mean? Right, so we just right. ate cornbread and greens and black eyed peas and and ham and I mean you just did all of that because mm-hmm. of where we were in our in our southern culture um so yes so we have that type of thing is kind of just part of what we mm-hmm. do now I don't I don't cook all that all the time but um but yeah he gets he gets some of that <laughs> well, that that, that in, oh and our growing up that was sort of our mainstay especially you know from my grandmother to my mother and all uh chicken and dumplings to you name it uh, mm-hmm. and then William of course considers himself a connoisseur of all things barbecue. Barbecue is yeah, so good. Know. Yeah, but uh, that's the big Do y'all, do you like, what do you like, what is your, do you like mustard-based or vinegar-based barbecue? Or do you like a red <coughs> barbecue sauce? I like Sweet Baby Ray's. Sweet Baby, it's a good, well, that's like a whole bunch of options. Well, yeah. in some places, if you dare talk about barbecue sauce, you've offended the cook. Yeah. I mean, oh, because, it, It's yeah. the rub, it's, it's it the is, rub and that's, that's it. That's true. I think that's Texas in it. In the Texas region or whatever, but but Somewhere anyway, down I mean, it's all good. It's all good. Well, we have a few more minutes left, and Aaron, I want to give you an opportunity. If we've not touched on an area of parenting or parenting uh, this wonderful, unique experience that we've not talked about, please, you know, bring it up right now. Um, I guess I would just invite your listeners that if they felt like they um, had a child in their life that was in part of a transracial adoptive family, and they were interested in connecting with that child to help have that child connect stronger to their culture to make that 
invitation and to make that connection um, because it is, I, you know, my husband and I can do a lot for our son when mm-hmm. it comes to parenting, um, but we can't provide that cultural lens that's going to be accurate for him. Um, and we know that we can do the best that we can, but we can't do it without allies and other people that support us and support him. I mean, they don't have to like us. They just need to like him. <laughs> right. um, and he's very likable. But but there are other children just like him in the community, um, and they need they need that. That's yeah, a good I point. met your son. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Uh, networks. Are there networks? You said you knew of an, another woman who had adopted a girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and then offline, you talked about a, a unique family relationship that we're not going to go into because we're not going <laughs> to put your son on the spot. But basically, there's a family that has adopted a black young girl. Right. Well, and, and it's it's just that for adoptive families, we recognize each other from a mile away, right? Like you can see right. there's a group of white people walking with a color, you know, a child of a different color and the color, you know, like you can see that. And we already know each other's language because of that. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to meet other adoptive families. And do you do outings? Do you gatherings? Mm-hmm. Do you <coughs> we do that. We do that sometimes. Um, there's also um, there was a, a, a parenting group um, for parenting children of color just here in Bloomington, mm-hmm. um, and so we were invited to be part of that as well. So that was um, not just adoptive parents, but actually started by a group of Black parents here in the community that wanted their children to have more peers that they connected with mm-hmm. as well. Um, and so that's beneficial, too, to make make the connections through that. You know, I don't know if you realize it, but you had a Black experience because I can go into a, into a function or event and I immediately know if there's a, a one other Black person all the way on the other side <laughs> of the room before, before <laughs> I even see them. Yep, yep. Well, that's, and I was going to say, that's, I think that is one of the things that um, when that's happened in my life, when I've been the only white person there, or only one mm-hmm. or two white people, um, it doesn't, obviously doesn't happen very often. It happens to my son all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Like his right. life is that. Mm-hmm. And that in itself, you talked about the, the weight that's on, you know, or maybe the burden or well, I'm not sure exactly what you're saying, but just how exhausted, kind of that toll that it may take on us as we do it. I think of it for him a right, lot too, because right. that's a toll to be, um, you know, like here in Bloomington, it's hard. It's hard to be one of the only black mm-hmm. boys in his class or in his group or on his mm-hmm. team. Or And then he comes home and he's with us. And it, it just, I think that's hard. You know, um, two, two quick questions. One is, I wonder, and I have not really run across this situation, but how rare would it be for a black family to adopt a white child? Well, I used to be in charge of an adoption age, a foster care agency um, mm-hmm. in Illinois, and that doesn't happen very often, but that's usually the mechanism that it happens when we had um, a black family that was adoptive parents. Um, I mean, sorry, a foster, they were foster parents, but they were open to adoption. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that would happen where they would have a placement and they would just be like, yep, this this child is our baby and we're going to just, this child needs adoption and this is that. So we had families growing in that way mm-hmm. um, where the, the parents may have been black, but then the child was either white maybe um, or of a different race well, just see, not that, that's another interview unto itself because mm-hmm. those those social dynamics would really be interesting to explore yeah mm-hmm. and and i hope during this conversation as we're coming to a close uh that in no way you felt that it, that you were the answer person for all things transracial adoptive parent i hope your listeners did not find me yeah. to be i was just talking about our experience yeah and and these experiences are unique uh, just as William and I have often been in situations where maybe the only black person in a committee or panel or whatever discussion group, we are not the answer person for all things black. Our lives are our lives. And uh, I, I applaud you again. 
And I just want to say um, our thanks to Aaron Pretmore, who's president and CEO at the Greater Bloomington Chamber of Commerce, for joining us today and really enlightening us and just opening up to share her experiences as a transracial adoptive parent. Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have any ideas for this program, we would like to hear it. Please send your emails to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure that we share any and everything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. Our email address, once again, bringiton at wfhb.org. just heard Linus and Lucy, a very popular jazz piano composition, composition ah, written by Vince Giraldi, 
appearing in many of the Peanuts animated television specials. Named for the fictional siblings Linus and Lucy Van Pelt, it was originally released on the Vince Giraldi trio's album Jazz Impressions of a Boy Named Charlie Brown from 1964. And of course, we all remember, and we all see it every year, the A. Charlie Brown Christmas soundtrack that was uh, released in 1965. Bring it on as the People's Forum for Black Culture in South Central Indiana and beyond. Are you a tweeter? If so, you're invited to follow the WFHB News Twitter account. It's a great way to get breaking news and updates on what's going on behind the scenes and on the air with WFHB News. Simply go to twitter.com and search for WFHB News, or you can always visit our news website at wfhb.org news. It's time now to give you the latest perspective on the people, news, and issues affecting the black community. For bringing on, I'm Clarence Boone. And I'm William Hosea. All right, uh, let's take a look here. And our, I don't know if I was anticipating this, but there was an announcement by Senator Cory Booker reportedly on the verge of suspending his presidential campaign. Um, and the New Jersey candidate is allegedly struggling with fundraising. And now this is from News One. We read that as Mayor Bill de Blasio has dropped from the presidential race, Senator Cory Booker might be next. Reportedly, the New Jersey senator may drop off if he doesn't raise millions in less than two weeks. According to a staff memo from the campaign manager, Edisu Demise, which was obtained by NBC News, Booker needs to raise $2 million in the next 10 days. I think I got, what, $2 on me. But the memo allegedly read, without a fundraising surge to close out this quarter, we do not see a legitimate long-term path forward. The next 10 days will determine whether Cory Booker can stay in this race. The memo also reportedly read, if our campaign is not in a financial position to grow, he's not going to continue to consume resources and attention that can be used to focus on beating Donald Trump, which needs to be everyone's first priority. Booker might not be in this race for much longer, The same is true for other important voices in the field. As of a CNN SSRS poll from September 11th, now this was, of course, uh, 22 days ago, I mean 12 days ago, Booker's polling at only 2% overall and 1% with black voters, which is surprising, which is a key component to winning the primary. Uh, He did have certain hiccups, of course, in his run, especially when he kicked off his presidential campaign the first day of Black History Month, and refused to say that Trump was a racist. Now, William, 1% in the black community? I think he should just cut to the chase and go back and uh, focus on the the Senate, endorse somebody else, and and, uh, the rest of them should do the same thing. You know, when when they had the the hearings for Kavanaugh, and he was on that judiciary hearing, um, or the vetting committee, I I, I don't want to misspeak and say the wrong committee, but... There was this sort of explosive moment. There was an exchange between him and a Republican uh, senator, and it didn't look right for him. Uh, he was out of character. I mean, his 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 anger rose, his animus rose, and and it, it just kind of backfired on Cory Booker. It was just a sort of a moment that I think a lot of people mm-hmm. remember, um, and that was just a strange uh, hearing process to begin with. But that exchange just, I don't know, I don't think that helped him. But he, you know, he kind of started off at the bottom, and, and there he has remained throughout the uh, campaign. Okay. All right. Well, we'll see. We, we, we hope that he can continue. I, I think more people of color in this race is, is, is an important, healthy thing. But if he can't muster the support, then 
as William said, he needs to reconsider, and we need senators. <laughs> right. So, anyhow, Colin Kaepernick reportedly willing to be a backup player, yet NFL teams still won't sign him. Colin Kaepernick still can't seem to land a team despite reports that he's willing to be a backup quarterback. According to CBS Sports, Kaepernick's agent has contacted various teams this week in hopes of landing a quarterback position for his client. However, the teams aren't biting. ESPN commentator Stephen A. Smith says that Kaepernick's camp has reached out to the Steelers. Essentially, they're not interested, Smith said this week. Smith further explained that Kaepernick's camp contacted the Jets. No word on them yet. They've contacted the Saints. They didn't get their phone calls returned. To make matters worse, all three of these teams have added a quarterback since last Tuesday morning. The Saints signed J.T. Barrett to their practice squad, and he'll be their number three player behind Teddy Bridgewater and Taysom Hill. The Steelers added Paxton Lynch to their practice squad on Tuesday, and the Jets reportedly signed David Fales on Wednesday. According to Smith, Kaepernick didn't even want to be a starting quarterback. The sports commentator says he spoke with Kaepernick's girlfriend last week. According to Smith, she told him that Cap would be open to a backup job. One thing I'd say, Canadian Football League. Do they still exist? No, probably not. Probably overseas European League. Yeah. Canadian Football League doesn't exist? I don't know. I haven't heard anything. I I haven't watched any football in so many years. So so what do you do in a situation where you're talented? You trained for this all your life uh, from probably Pop Warner all the way through junior high, high school, college, and now you're at the pinnacle and no one wants you. Just because you stood on principle. That's a tough one. What Whatever became of his court case, he was suing the NFL. I, I think the judge uh, cleared the way, the path for the lawsuit to go forward, but I haven't heard anything and since And that may then. be part of the reason why they consider him either toxic or radioactive, or yeah. maybe they settled out of court, and they probably said you can't disclose the settlement. But I, it just doesn't make <clears throat> any sense that this whole uh, kneeling issue w- would would still have a life. Preventing him from having a career after all this time. Well, with 30 seconds left, we won't begin another story other to say that this is really a time of a lot of things going on from the hurricane in the Bahamas and the way the United States uh, has not treated the Bahamians to the climate strike we just witnessed and how some have said that that has been a causal factor and why a lot of immigrants have been coming to the United States from Central America because the crops aren't growing. Uh, Things are just upside down. So we'll have more information on that as the weeks come. But uh, that was a look, a brief look at African-American headline news from around the world for this week. Tune in again next week for the latest news on and for the African-American community. We want to know what you think of current black issues. So send your comments to bring it on at WFHB.org. For Bring It On, I'm Clarence Boone. I'm William Hosea, and you're listening to Bring It On, Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community here on WFHB, 91.3 FM on your radio and live on the web at WFHB.org.
heard Equinox by the famed jazz writer and composer Hubert Laws. The autonomal equinox typically occurs on either September 22nd or September 23rd, marking the beginning of spring and autumn, respectively in the northern hemisphere and the reverse in the southern hemisphere. The days on which an equinox falls have about equal periods of sunlight and darkness. And that's your uh, fact for the day. It's time to bring you an opportunity of interest for the black community. For bringing on, I'm William Hosea. And I'm Clarence Booth. <clears throat> Is your business predominantly women-owned, minority, low-income, or veteran-owned? If so, please stop by and register your business in the county registry. The Bloomington Housing Authority is planning nearly $7 million in renovations in the upcoming months, and they need contracting work. And up to... They're authorized to uh, set aside 50, up to 50% of those contracts for, for women-owned, minority-owned, and veteran-owned businesses. They need work in the following areas. Drywall, painting, insulation, cleaning, carpentry, HVAC mechanic, roofing, flooring, moving, cleaning, and many more. Registering your business allows the Bloomington Housing Authority easy access to find you when they need certain jobs completed in the upcoming reservations. Now, there's a business registry and contractor training taking place on Wednesday, October 23rd from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. at the BHA, the Bloomington Housing Authority Community Room, 1007 North Summit Street. And they'll also be taking uh, job applications for that uh, renovation hmm. project. And that's just the first half. You know, this is a great opportunity um, for a lot of people who have registered as uh, small businesses and are, are, are registered and looking for work. I mean, here's a golden opportunity uh, to put your name in the bed and into the, uh, the hat to be uh, selected. And then there's uh, a contracting work and maintenance open house I see on Friday, October 25th from 1.30 to 3.30 p.m. And it's also at the BHA Community Building um, well, this is a different uh, address, the BHA Community Building, which is 1002 North Summit Street. Right across the street. And uh, find work with local contractors in trade areas, including painting, drywall, insulation, roofing, and more. And they'll have applications on site and are happy to assist in filling them out. The renovation and temporary relocation, the re renovation and temporary relocation information consists of the BHA striving to not only provide housing, but making it a place that truly feels like home. So when it comes time for renovating your unit, do you have all the details? Come on and ask questions about where you may temporarily be staying during renovations. So this is a golden opportunity, and we just wanted to share that to, with our listening audience. So please avail yourself. 
And they'll also be providing assistance if you need help uh, getting a license. Oh, okay. If you have an event or happening the African-American community should know about, please send that info directly to the Bring It On staff. Or if you want additional information about a calendar item that you've heard tonight, you can contact us at bringiton at wfhb.org. Our thanks to Aaron Pretmore, President and CEO at the Greater Bloomington Chamber of Commerce, for joining us today to share her experiences as a transracial adoptive parent. Our show's producer is Clarence Boone with help from WFHB News Department. Tonight's board engineer is Chantal LaFontante. Our original theme music was created by Jamil FM with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm William Hosea. And I'm Clarence Boone. Tune in next Monday, September 30th. This month is almost over at 6 p.m. for another exciting edition of Bring It On. And again, happy fall right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.